Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This will be the first episode of the podcast where I've had two guests at the same time. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to introduce to you uh, Dr. Lakeisha Roney. I had her on a previous episode of this podcast where we discussed uh, Black feminism. So be sure to go check out that episode. Uh, And we're also joined by her mom, Gwen Good. Um, And we're going to be talking today on the topic of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. We're going to be looking at it from the perspective of being a person of color and a caregiver. So to get started, uh, Dr. Roney, share a little bit more about yourself for the listeners. Okay, well, my name is Lakeisha Roney. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I've been licensed in the state of Virginia since 2005. And I'm owner of Interstellar Counseling and Consulting, which is a small outpatient private practice in Richmond, Virginia. Um, the practice has been open since 2007. We do provide um, individual counseling, family counseling, group counseling um, to individuals in the Richmond and surrounding areas. <clears throat> I provide clinical supervision and consultation through uh, my practice. I've worked in the mental health field for over 20 years. Um, variety of different settings, inpatient, outpatient settings, um, university settings, nonprofit, and for-profit settings. And just currently working full-time through my practice, doing some contract work, and seeing clients at the practice. That's awesome. So uh, Dr. Roney brings a wealth of knowledge to this conversation. Um, And our next guest is Gwen Good, she is an educator of 34 years, um, and she's going to be, um, her and Lakeisha will be talking about their experiences with Lakeisha's grandfather, um, who um, dealt with uh, Alzheimer's disease, and uh, Miss Good is going to be sharing about the caregiver perspective on it as well. So uh, Gwen, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay, um, as you said, I am a 34-year educator, uh, master educator. Um, I, I am also a family and consumer science teacher uh, with Chesterfield County Public Schools. And I do a little venturing out with catering and um, some fashion design because I'm an undergrad degree in um, fashion design and textiles. So I basically mostly teach, and I'm pretty much family-oriented sort of look to take care of my family, that type of thing. That's awesome. Uh, I wasn't aware of the, um, the culinary and the, the, the fashion stuff too. So, um, do you do any of that? Like from a business standpoint? Um, yeah, I've been doing, um, a lot of, um, seamstress work over the years, I guess about 20 years now. Um, the designing gowns and robes and those types of things, alterations. Awesome. (laughs) So at the end of the the episode, um, I normally have a little part where, um, my guests can like talk about like the work that they do and how people can find them and stuff like that. So I'll be sure to ask you about that again. So you can, um, kind of give information if somebody may want to contact you for, you know, seamstress services or culinary would that be okay? Okay. Yeah, that'd be fine. Awesome. Well, um, uh, Lakeisha, as you know, kind of the format of this podcast, I like to jump into each topic by kind of coming up with like a working definition of um, the topic of the day. So given okay. your clinical background, can you give myself okay. and the listeners kind of a working definition of the terms dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Okay, well, there have been some changes with those terms. Um, when we're thinking about uh, mental health diagnosis, um, both Alzheimer's and dementia falls within um, 
the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, um, and during the revision of the fifth edition, um, the term dementia was previously a category within the DSM. But when it was revised in the fifth edition, it was then categorized as major neurocognitive disorder. And the term um, Alzheimer's was categorized under mild neurocognitive disorder. So if you now go into the DSM, it's not a category for dementia and Alzheimer's. It, it, it actually falls within the neurocognitive disorders. So for many years, it was um, under a totally different category. And when we talk about major neurocognitive disorders, it's a disturbance within a single cognitive ability. And the ability is so severe that it will interfere with the interdependence and disturbance could be caused by a multitude of things, such as drug use, delirium, or other medical or psychiatric conditions. Um, the person's language could be impacted, their executive functioning, such as skills um, that enables a person to, um, to plan, organize, remember things could be impacted, um, their attention to tasks could be impacted, um, their motor functioning, their visual perception, spatial relationships to objects, all of those things could be impaired as well as learning, memory, and social cognition. Um, there's also minor impairment um, because there's different, uh, varying degrees. It's kind of like a spectrum. So when we talk about minor um, impairment, the minor neurocognitive development could be less severe with the same six categories that I mentioned before, um, where it's not as severe or significant. And it's not bad enough to rob a person's basic independence. So um, when we think about Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease can be present without a major neurocognitive disorder or dementia. And then dementia can be present without Alzheimer's disease. And I think that sometimes is confusing to people. So dementia is your more severe, that's your major neurocognitive disorder. And then your Alzheimer's mm -hmm. can be minor, but it also can be severe. It depends on the person's function. I think that's a good um, kind of reminder and a background for everyone listening and even myself, because like you said, both of those terms are they have different spectrums with them and they kind of can crisscross or exist independently of each other correct exactly but alzheimer's is the most common type of dementia there are other types of dementia that exist such as vascular cognitive impairment um, dementia with lewy bodies frontal temporal dementia, Parkinson's, Huntington's disease, HIV, traumatic brain injury, and other types of medical conditions that can impact cognitive ability. I'm glad to be having this conversation because it's not within my realm of expertise. Um, and I don't know if I shared this with you, Lakeisha, um, but... Um, the only, I guess, interaction I've ever had with um, dementia um, was my great-grandmother when I was growing up. She um, probably, I was probably maybe first or second grade when she started, when it was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And then I watched the deterioration um, over mm. the next few years until she had passed away. So I kind of knew of it from you know, the perspective of hearing the term Alzheimer's disease. Um, but mm -hmm. I never, I never really knew, um, 
kind of much about it. And like I mentioned to you before we started recording, um, this uh, the neurocognitive disorders in the DSM, um, it wasn't something that I came across in my training to be a therapist. The only time I really dealt with it was when I was studying to take the exam. Um, so I think this is going to be a good um, conversation with uh, both you and Gwen today. So to kind of jump in, um, Lakeisha, tell us a little bit about um, your grandfather and kind of get a little bit more specific about his particular diagnosis and kind of what you witnessed through that process. Well, my grandfather was diagnosed with um, dementia. How many years ago was that, Mama? Uh, maybe about five, because he actually went through about three years of it before he passed. Right, about five years ago. And um, I guess the family members kind of noticed small changes, mainly in short-term memory, where he would forget where he put the keys or forget where he placed certain things. Um, it was small changes in memory and he was diagnosed by his medical doctor. Um, his long-term memory seems to be very intact, meaning that um, he could remember lots of things from his childhood. He could remember faces and names for a long time. Um, he could recall lots of long-term memories of, you know, family members as they grew up. But as he decompensated, a lot of that long-term memory also started to decline. Um, we also noticed like motor development started to decline. Um, there were also symptoms of depression. There was some confusion at times. He would oftentimes be wandering and kind of lost and um, something that was very interesting to me was um, hallucinating, seeing things that weren't there, mm. especially things that were related to his childhood. Okay. And um, there was a couple of things that you said there that I, um, I'll get some clarification on to make sure that, you know, understanding the terms define what you mean by decompensating um meaning that his symptoms were getting worse therefore his functioning was also declining okay so he was not capable to like care for himself even with like taking his medication before you know during the early stages of alzheimer's he was able to take his medication on his own he was able to bathe and um, eat on his own, but as time went on and his um, symptoms worsened, he relied on family members to give him give him his medication. At one time, he was uh, he would get very irritable and defiant, so he wouldn't want to take medication. So we'd have to find very creative ways to give him medication. Um. There were times that he didn't want to eat. Mm -hmm. So it was just a, a decline in functioning as time went on. Is it safe to say that the neurocognitive um, uh, disorders like dementia are a deterioration of um, the brain cells? Is that too Most simplistic? Definitely. Most definitely. But no, that's the spot on. Okay, so um, it's it a deterioration good. of the brain and the um, the brain cells, which is basically the computer yeah. for the body. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Gwen, would, would there be anything that you would add to those definitions for um, Alzheimer's or dementia? Yeah, and she is correct. And when, when she mentioned something about uh, confusion, uh, he did go through a phase where the words were there in his mind, but because of the disease, they were scrambled and he just wasn't able to choose the right words when he wanted to say certain things. 
So um, you know, many times he would not uh, get into a conversation because many times he just couldn't find the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that's mm-hmm. very scary and kind of hard oh, yeah. to, uh, uh, from a, from being the person dealing with it, but also the, the caregiver to kind of see that breakdown happening. Right. And I think to kind of keep with the metaphor that we had of the b- brain basically being a computer, it's kind of like, um, you know, you have all of the, if we imagine, let's say a desktop computer with, you know, the wires going to the monitor and stuff like that, um, or whatever the big box is, I don't know the technical terms, but it's kind of like mm-hmm. as if over time the wires are kind of getting chipped away at. So they mm. kind of start short circuiting a little bit, but they still work. Right. And then over time, certain connections just completely go offline. It's kind of like a progression like that. And so, um, Lakeisha, kind of share your story being um, a family member and also watching your grandfather like progressing through Alzheimer's. Um, it was challenging for me because my grandfather helped raise me. So all of my life, um, the family always joked because they would say that I was, I was their last baby. I was the, I was the youngest child, but that was my grandfather. I was always around him and he spoiled me and I spent a lot of time with him. Um, so to go from this healthy man that I followed through the house and crawled over and slobbed on when when I was a baby Mm -hmm. to, you know, being a teenager and sitting down and watching 2020 and 60 minutes with throughout my high school years and to going through these phases was very challenging. But it also gave me an opportunity to kind of reconnect with him in a way um, to remember him, how he was before, um, before he had the illness and to properly grieve him before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for other family members that really didn't spend the time with him while he was um, going through his decline, it made it challenging for them to grieve him after um well after he passed away i felt like i had the opportunity to really grieve him um during the decompensation phase because because clinically i knew what was going to happen i just didn't know when it was going to happen if that makes sense yeah and um i did an episode on this podcast uh, i think it was the first episode on grief um, and it's, I, I, the person that I interviewed, uh, her husband, um, had, um, cancer and he kind of, I think he had it three different times, um, and was battling it. And it's kind of that it's a type of grief that, um, I guess I term it living grief where you're grieving a person kind of slipping away right. as yeah. you're, they're still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of sounds like what you were describing, with kind of watching yeah. the decompensation uh, process. Most definitely. Well, um, Gwen, tell us a little bit about the the caregiver's perspective. So um, first, um, let everyone know what a caregiver is to a person who uh, has dementia or Alzheimer's. Okay. Um, basically, um, a caregiver is uh, is the person that pretty much um, just take care of that person, make sure that that person is taking their medication, um, assisting with medical appointments, um, just helping them with the bathing and all the different steps that they actually go through. And my mother was the main caregiver, um, but I would go out and uh, help assist her with him, you know, all the way to the end. And sometimes that, um, as a caregiver, uh, you end up having to um, assist with bathing, um, uh, pretty much just watching to make sure that 
they don't physically wander out of the house and those types of things. So my mother was the main caregiver and, you know, I was just there to support her and help her because um, it could get to be uh, a a strenuous job and and it it can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I pretty much just um, was by her side to help assist them, you know, so that uh, she won't burn herself out. Definitely. And you you touched on a good point there. Um, there's a a term, and obviously Lakeisha and I know this well, being um, therapists, uh, it's called compassion fatigue. So anyone who like works in right. um, a, a type of profession that is serving others, it could be, you know, a nurse, a therapist, a doctor. Um, I mean, even, you know, a pastor or you know, somebody who's dealing with, you know, these like challenging aspects of life, um, like you said, they can become burnt out. So I guess in this case with um, your father, um, you were kind of, she was, uh, the mom was the the main caregiver, but you were kind of the caregiver to the caregiver to kind of right. support her <laughs> as she supported him. Um, right. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about that, how that looked um, in the, you said it was a five year kind of progression. Yeah. Um, well, when, when he was first diagnosed, I just started doing a lot of research, uh, because many times when my growing up in the fifties, we often looked at what is now Alzheimer's, um, back in the day in African-American community, we often refer to this as, uh, people becoming senile or experiencing senility. But then over the years, we learned that it's pretty much was associated uh, with Alzheimer's. So uh, I just started doing a lot of research when we started seeing the symptoms. And uh, as the symptoms progressed, um, we had someone from the Alzheimer's Association to come in. And we had a family session uh, where we had someone to speak with my uh, siblings. Uh, and share information with them to let them know what was happening and what Alzheimer's looked like so everyone could at least be uh, more aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. That was very helpful, um, Janzel, when the representative came in from the Alzheimer's Association. She was very um, helpful, very open to questions, provide a lot of education, a lot of resources. Um, and that, that's one recommendation that I will give to the listeners to, if you have a family member um, or you know someone who is dealing with um, Alzheimer's or dementia, reach out to your local Alzheimer's Association because they're very helpful. That's good to know about that from someone who's actually dealt with the the organization, because I've seen, um, you know, like the the specialty license plates and things like that about um, Alzheimer's, but I've not really heard much about um, someone actually interacting with them. So I'm glad that they were able to kind of provide that knowledge and information to kind of support y'all through that. And Gwen, you touched on something that is good because at the beginning we talked about the different terms. So like Alzheimer's, dementia, um, and the different types, but also you mentioned um, like in the fifties growing up, they would call a person senile. Um, Mm -hmm. And that actually is still a stigmatized uh, term that gets thrown around. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered it at all, but someone will say, Oh, well, so-and-so is just getting senile. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Help the listeners understand kind of what, I guess, that term meant and what that uh, kind of changed from everyone was like, oh, well, they're getting old, they're senile, to now we have, like, actual terms to to kind of put a name and a label to these things that are happening. Right. And, well, back during those times, like you said, people um, described it as, this person is getting senile and they were basically going through some of the uh, same phases. Uh, They will forget things. Uh, They would begin to repeat things over and over again. And sometimes they would uh, go into 
minor phases of depression where they would isolate themselves. And um, now with Alzheimer's, they have all the different phases. And I had to learn about the phases uh, with my dad uh, while I was doing a lot of research and talking to people. Um, I learned that Alzheimer's was a, a phase. They had different phases. Um, they had mild, moderate, and more severe phases that you were going through. And they somewhat linked it now to um, uh, different things um, as far as Alzheimer's is concerned. Mm-hmm. So they would just have different stages where you would experience one thing during a mild stage, and then um, you could see another thing happening during the um, uh, moderate stage, and then the severe stage. And it also was linked to the uh, decline of your organs as right. time goes on. Definitely, because we talked about how it's kind of a a deterioration of the brain cells, but obviously with the brain being right. the computer, if That's that right. is starting to shut down, then obviously the right. functioning of the, the organs that it's wired to is going to um, start to shut down as well. And they say mm-hmm. that you should look at Alzheimer's as a, um, a disease, a pathology, than as a clinical syndrome, because the symptoms are apparent years before right the, the alzheimer's begins years before the symptoms even start mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it can manifest itself within many different things from from no symptoms at all to right. major symptoms over a short period of time or that time could be stretched out definitely And I think from what I understand from, I mentioned my uh, great-grandmother who dealt with uh, Alzheimer's. Um, I think there was a, there was like a genetic pattern. Um, Can you talk a little bit of one or both of y'all talk about kind of like what causes this? Um, To share a little bit about that. It can be a genetic pattern, but sometimes it's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the drug use, head head injury, um, um, lifestyle. If a person lives a more active lifestyle and they're constantly learning and doing, they're less likely to develop Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So it's a multitude of different things that um, impact the individual's ability to have um, to develop Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, and through genetic testing, um, and then there are some blood tests that, that may be able to pick up on those type of factors. But a lot of times, the medical history can tell you a lot. Um, physical exams, diagnostic tests, um, even a neurological exam through looking at the brain, the brain imaging can tell you a lot of whether the individual um, is developing symptoms of Alzheimer's. So this is the public um, service of- announcement for all of the younger <laughs> listeners. Even though you're young and healthy, go to your annual physical and still see your doctor. Yeah. You're not invincible. Go to your doctor. Exactly. And keep an active brain. Mm-hmm. Keep an active, healthy brain. And be mindful of what you put in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the neuropsychological screening tests that we use within our field, such as the mini mental state exam. And the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, those are some of the assessments that they use to determine whether a person has dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, there's like the, the memory impairment screening. There are some other practitioner type of screening tests that they will give to an individual if they go into their doctor's office to determine whether they have Alzheimer's. And then there's um, an even test uh, that they use that will draw the um, spinal fluid to determine the relationship between the spinal fluid and the ability, um, the individual having Alzheimer's as well. It sounds like the technology has definitely evolved a lot. um, I remember um, we called her Grandma Dickerson. Um, So... This was in the 90s, 
in like early 2000s. And I really feel like they mm. didn't have as much understanding and That's tests and things right. like that back right. then. Or, me- or medication either. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah, it just kind of ran its course. There wasn't a lot of out there. So as you know, Lakeisha, as you shared all of the different tests and genetic things, and I think you said a spinal tap and all of that, like um, the the technology and the research behind it is definitely advancing and um, they're being mm-hmm. able to catch this stuff early. Um, but I thought that was a great little segue to remind people, it doesn't matter what age you are, you still need to go to the doctor and, you know, get your checkups right. and stuff. Because that's the only way that this stuff can be beneficial is if someone's kind of keeping an eye on that medical history. Gwen, I'm going to ask you this question because it just came to mind. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of um, folks that look like us, people of color, um, are very hesitant of modern medicine. So um, can you kind of speak to that on, you know, how people are like kind of reluctant? And I know men in particular don't like to go to the doctor. So can you share a little <laughs> bit about that? And you're absolutely right. Uh, men are hesitant uh, about going to the doctors. I think it's African-American. We often think that um, when we go to the doctor, they just going to give us a whole bunch of medication. They feel like they're giving a lot of medication that's just going to dope them up, as they say, mm-hmm. and uh, and really not help them. Uh, but fortunately, uh, we were able to get my father to the doctor to uh, get medication. And um, as a caregiver, uh, that can be a task uh, because many times they don't want to go. And mm-hmm. um, I had to trick my dad a lot of times into going to the doctor. So I would tell him that, you know, we're going for a ride and he would get dressed. And when we go to the doctor's office, I would go in and check in. And then I would just come back and tell him, OK, I need you to come with me in here because I need him, the doctor, to look at this, whatever it is that's going on with me. And he would come in then. And then uh, when Very it was time clever. to go in the back, they would call him to the back. And um, I would just uh, tell him, come on and go with me because I need you to sit here with me so uh, you can hear what the doctor's saying. So I could get him in that way. But John um, Zell, he was clean as a tech all the time. <laughs> just Stacy Adams, shoes on and, and a suit on. Walked and a up hat. in there looking sharp. Every day. Every day. <laughs> wow. Every day. I've never seen this man in jogging pants and sneakers or a pair of jeans, like my entire life. <laughs> All the way up until the, the, the final days, he was always sharp. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and I think also in, in some of the cases when, when they recognize that there is something going on with them, I just felt like I could see the fear in my dad. You know, just having to go to the doctor because he didn't want to really know, but he knew something was going on, but he just didn't want to, I guess, in denial and just wasn't willing to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, that's a scary thing to kind of it is come to terms with, yeah. like to be told, yeah. you know, because dementia for I mean, there's medications and things to kind of help along the process, but it's relatively terminal, right? Right. Um, So to kind of be told that it's, you know, it's it's life-changing to be given a diagnosis like that. Um, But I think you touched on the the reluctance of, you know, going to the doctor, uh, especially with uh, African-American men, and then it's kind of that... um, kind of ignorance is bliss type of thing or yeah um, right yeah that's stigma with the mm-hmm. absolutely and I'm, also I'm glad, go ahead i'm glad you brought up the the um the the fact that it is challenging for people of color to to seek care the alzheimer's association has a facts and figures report of race ethnicities and alzheimer's and it talks about some of the challenges that people of color face and the statistics behind it. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a lot of people are aware of some of the some of the issues that people of color have about going to the doctor. Like they say, two thirds of Black Americans. This is sixty six percent believe it's harder for them to get excellent care for Alzheimer's disease than other dementia. Wow. Mm-hmm. Two in five Native Americans, this is 40%, and Hispanic Americans believe their own race or ethnicity makes it harder to get care, as do one-third of Asian Americans. Mm. Wow. So that that's, that's shone in a light on our our system, our healthcare system, how are people of color being treated when they go into their doctor's offices? How are they being received? How are they being treated? And if they're not being treated fairly or looked upon or or given the quality care that they deserve, then Mm -hmm. people may be hesitant to go in and receive the services that they need. Definitely. Yeah, and you're right about that, Uh, and I'm going to say in reference to that, um, we as African Americans, we may not always have someone to advocate for us because many times um, people with Alzheimer's, they may not have someone to always be there. They may not have that moral support. Like with my father, he had all of us to, to be there with him and like every doctor's visit that he would go, I would be there and would let him know, okay, I'm here. So in case the doctor uh, tell you something that you don't understand, you know, I can explain this to you. So um, it is a process. And, you know, the more support is, is good or if you have someone to advocate for you, and that makes a difference in the care that you get uh, with almost anything. Absolutely. Um, You touched on a lot of great things there um, between um, the kind of navigating the health system and, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's it's tough enough to, you know, we've all experienced we go to our doctor for like physical or whatever. And the doctor is like so quick to like be in and out um, Mm -hmm. to kind of get the care that you need. And then. Um, you know, Lakeisha touched on the fact that there are racial um, disparities and basically mm-hmm. systemic problems with, I mean, our, the United States healthcare system is got mm-hmm. a long way to go um, before it's even considered adequate. But those statistics on, you know, African Americans, Hispanics, Asians who, you know, are surveyed on the the type of care that they get and more specifically with like dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, that's, that's really shocking um, mm-hmm. kind of information. And then on top of that, you know, you kind of touched on how um, people of color are not trusting of, you know, the medical system, which makes sense. I mean, we have a lot of history to show us blunders, mm-hmm. you know, where, um, you know, basically people of color were used as, you know, um, yeah, as guinea pigs and um, experimented on and not given full information on, Mm -hmm. you know, what was going on and what treatments were available and stuff like that. Um, And that wasn't too far. That wasn't that long ago. Um, So that mistrust is definitely passed down, but we're not several generations removed from those types of things. Um, We're not that far removed from slavery, if we're being honest. Um, So um, I think that's good. And then on top of that, you got to think about the disparities, too. So we talked about how people of color are distrustful of the medical system, but also you got to think of those stigmas that uh, people working in medicine kind of uh, convey onto the patients that they work with. It's more likely, um, and we've seen it time and time again, you know, uh, let's say a white woman is um, experiencing pain. Um, mm-hmm. The diagnosis, they've done studies on this where the diagnosis and the treatment given is very different from that of a black woman. Um, who say the white woman is um, uh, wealthier, right? And the black woman Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, they look at her insurance and they see she has Medicaid or something like that. They know Mm -hmm. she's lower income. The treatment that they give will be 
drastically different. And I mean, not even just along, you know, socioeconomic things. I mean, everyone's heard about what happened with, um, was it Serena Williams? Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, how a person who's, you know, uh, well-known cannot receive the care that they need because of bias um, Mm -hmm. based just on skin color. Um, Mm -hmm. So those are all really good uh, points. And I'm glad we're we're having this conversation. Um, And Gwen, I had mentioned before, but this podcast is kind of, you know, uh, being a place for um, communities of color to kind of listen and to listen to these conversations about mental health to kind of break the Mm -hmm. stigma in the, especially uh, communities of color, it's kind of, you kind of stick with the status quo um, and kind of just do things as they've always been done. But obviously, you know, avoiding, you know, conversations about mental health and treatment. And like you, you mentioned, like the need for somebody to have an advocate and things like that. These, these conversations need to be had and readily accessible to people. So um, this has been uh, very helpful, even for me to just kind of hear y'all's experiences. So my next question is, um, we've kind of touched on it before, but I want to kind of just ask more generally, just in case we missed anything. Uh, and I'll ask this to both of y'all. How did, um, you know, um, I guess being, you know, being black, uh, women or people of color, how did this, how did that impact your own experience with, uh, Lakeisha's grandfather's diagnosis and treatment? Um, hmm. No. Well, for me personally, uh, when, when I first saw the symptoms, I started doing some research on my own, just thinking about it because so many people um, have been uh, on the news. They were talking about Alzheimer's and stuff. So after I began to do the research, um, it was emotional for me in the beginning to just think about the phases and the things that would happen to him over a period of time because they said it could go anywhere from one year to 10 years. You know, he would go through the phase. But Mm -hmm. uh, to think about the changes that uh, he would go through, the mental changes, the physical changes, it was emotional for me to think about the, my father, this independent man, uh, going through this phase where he will begin to fade and he will for, begin to forget me as a person. That was really emotional for me mm-hmm. and and to recognize the fact that uh, it was something that was terminal uh, that would come to an end. But after I got over that part, then I was okay uh, with, you know, with the fact that, okay, these are the things that's going to happen. And then I just began to look at all the different phases and and this is something that people really need to talk about, you know, to other people and 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 share these things with other family members who may not talk about those types of things. And that's what happened with me. I felt like we needed to I needed to share this with my siblings because all of us could begin to see things happening, but some of them would just stand back and, you know, no one would really talk about it. And um, I just felt like we all needed to get together and and talk about it and 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 share, you know, what we knew, what we wanted to know, and you know, talk about how we all were going to deal with this whole thing. And um, that's something that I believe more African Americans need to get together and talk about these things because, um, as African American community, we're accustomed to not sharing things and and thinking that, you know, uh, people are in your business. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of people have that mindset where you don't want people to know this because I don't want them in our business. And for my father, uh, we grew up in a community, um, let's say the village um, in the country. Everybody looks out for each other. Mm-hmm. And when my father was diagnosed with the Alzheimer's, we let people in the community and family members know that, um, you know, he was experiencing some Alzheimer's and he was still trying to drive. And we made people aware that, you know, to people just look out for him. For because him, yeah. yeah, keep an eye on him. Yeah, because 
you know, at that time, we could not get the keys away from it. And and those are some difficult things for people. Sometimes I think men experience it harder than women with my brothers. They did. They had a hard time, um, you know, trying to convince my dad that he didn't need to drive, you know, because that was their father. And they just felt like, okay, how am I going to tell my dad what to do? So it was emotional kind of re- for them. Reversal of the roles because you're going from being a child to that of a caregiver, but that person right. is your parent, so they were the caregiver. It's a, it's a very surreal kind of stage of life to be in. Yeah, yeah. You you touched on some great um, things about why you know communities of color need to pay attention to this stuff. But something that uh, kind of take away for me is the, 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 there's a tendency of, I don't want people to know my business, right? Or mm-hmm. um, what happens in this house stays in this house. A lot of stuff right. gets brushed right. under the rug. And that can be expanded not just to dementia and Alzheimer's, but in the communities right. of color, a lot of, you know, um, violence, uh, sexual assaults, mm-hmm. traumas, all of the stuff a lot of times in communities of color gets brushed under the rug. And it's like, this is That's our family true. business, don't say anything. Well, in a general sense, um, you know, keeping quiet and not speaking up or not talking about these things, it it has a cost. Mm-hmm. I mean, people die because they don't seek help, right? Um, men who don't want to involve other people or don't you know uh want to go to the doctor right well that's gonna play itself out whether you want to um acknowledge that it exists or not same thing with like addictions or um Mm -hmm. you know in communities of color a lot of times people don't want to deal with their mental health challenges so it manifests itself through addictions or you know abuse and all sorts of other things so um Mm -hmm. that's just a good um message i think too you can't you can't deal with it in silence or you can't not involve the community because like you said the community needed to know what was going on to help him stay safe right great and so lakeisha did you have anything to add um on that question about how you know being a person of color impacted your experience um as you watched your grandfather kind of go through this Yes, definitely. Um, A lot of it had to do with legal and financial perspective. Mm. Um, I was trying to be more so of an advocate for my family because um, my my grandparents always worked. And I knew that uh, applying for Medicaid and then getting approved for Medicaid would be challenging. And Medicare does not provide um, any long-term care for families. Wow. And um, just educating my grandmother and my family about that and um, talking with them about putting things in order. Um, I'm always, I've always been a planner since I was younger. Like, make sure you have life insurance, make sure you have a will, those type of things. Because you don't want to get to a situation where you cognitively you're not able to make decisions for yourself. And at any point in time, whether you're young or old, something could happen to you. It's important for all of us to have a power of attorney. (laughs) If something happens to you, you want the person you want making decisions for you. Absolutely. Um, And putting things in order so that you're able to make the choices you need to make before something happens to you, not waiting until it happens to you. Um, Even if it's okay, you know, your parents are aging, you might need to move some things around financially so that your parents can apply for certain benefits when they get a certain age, Mm -hmm. doing that before it happens. Um, So all of those things um, to me, making sure things are, are legally put in place ties into black wealth and creating a legacy for the next generation. And I think that's something that African-Americans have not been properly educated on. And it's oftentimes 
the most challenging part of of dealing with um, family members who don't understand that process and will continue on not passing on black wealth because they continue the status quo. Mm -hmm. And we can get into it. We could do a whole nother podcast on, you know, black wealth Mm -hmm. and its origins. I mean, to summarize, I mean, again, we're not that far removed from slavery um, in the grand scheme of things. And there was no sense of wealth or generational passing the stuff down. So we're almost like starting at the rudimentary levels of making sure that we have Mm -hmm. those things in order. Um, So -hmm. that's great. And I think that was an important point too, Lakeisha, about there's got to be someone advocating because when you're older, navigate, I mean, you know, Lakeisha and I, we're therapists, but we've worked with Medicaid programs and things like that with our clients and stuff. It's hard enough to do all the paperwork and get approved for the stuff when you're like in your 20s, like trying Mm -hmm. to apply for, you know, federal assistance, uh, you know, um, Medicaid and Medicare and stuff like that. Being an older person trying to navigate all of that stuff is even more difficult, especially since a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. is done through the computer and um, Mm -hmm. all of the the red tape and stuff like that. So um, it's definitely important to have, you know, it to for it to be like a collective um, community approach to it, because uh, otherwise people will slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there was a couple of points too that y'all made a little bit earlier that I just kind of wanted to um, highlight a little bit you mentioned how, um, you know, as a a person, you know, dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, and I remember this uh, in my own experiences with uh, Grandma Dickerson, but um, the the inevitable when they forget things or they forget you. um, And then also another symptom is that irritability or anger. um, Sometimes there's just outbursts. And um, and, and now that I think of it, I used to work as a server at a um, retirement community, and I, it's literally oh. all coming to me now, and I'm like, oh, a lot of those outbursts and tantrums and things that didn't make sense, it wasn't just a bad person, but they were going through these stages of these things. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of those yeah. aha moments. I'm having it live on this <laughs> podcast episode. Um, but anyway, the takeaway from that is when – you know, someone is dealing with dementia or um, these neurocognitive challenges, because it's not just it doesn't have to be a full blown disorder, it can just be elements, right? With aging, um, things change. And, you know, if, if we think about it, our brains, the brain cells that we have, once it's developed, we don't get new ones, like our skin turns itself over and we have a new skin in two weeks, I think is the turnaround time for that. Um, So Mm -hmm. a lot of our cells in our body regenerates and renews throughout our life. Our brain cells do not. Once Mm -hmm. we have them, that's what we have. And as they start to break down, it's not replenishing itself. So to kind of go back to that, when a person is dealing with this and they forget or they they forget who you are or they forget something um, or they have an outburst or a tantrum or they get angry – remembering that it's not personal. Um, Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I remember, you know, as I look back on like my experiences working in the retirement community and like, you know, and just having, you know, dealt with, you know, elderly people throughout my life, um, people, that piece of advice, I think, goes a long way because people spend so much time being frustrated and overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by the byproducts of this. But if you like just take a moment to tell yourself this is not personal this is not it's not personal like yeah, grandfather didn't just decide he's going to forget who Lakeisha is right it's not a right. it's not a a deliberate thing this is a byproduct of a a, a biological process that's happening mm-hmm. um and i think that don't take it personally thing can get you a long way mm-hmm. despite the fact that it still hurts like uh i remember right. when it got to the point where we had to we had to introduce ourselves every time we would go to see grandma dickerson and she didn't remember 
who we were. She thought, um, you know, I would go with my grandmother, who, who was Grandma Dickerson's daughter. And it got to the mm-hmm. point where she thought, you know, I'm a kid, right? But she thought I was my grandmother's husband. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And I think educating, you know, the kids and uh, the family, too, on kind of this to normalize, hey, this is something that's happening and not to, you know, take it so personally and get really upset. Like, well, how don't you remember me? How do you not know my name? You know, because that puts added stress on the other person. Um, And like you said, um, that scramble of, you know, they may, they may have something that they're trying to convey, but those connections are breaking down and it may not get to their lips and their words. So. And also in, in, in not taking it personal, um, be in the moment and and right. so many sh- humorous things that happen yeah. during that process um remember those things like That's i remember right. my my grandfather would put on my grandma's clothes and he'd be sitting on the, the at the end of the table with her clothes on and he she would say you know well you got my my pants on, my, my shirt on. He said, they still yours. <laughs> you just sit right down and have her clothes on. Yeah, being mindful I mean, and present in those moments. Oh, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. It's easier to laugh than to cry. Most Absolutely. Definitely. Most definitely. And then um, the, I remember my grandmother, he was being very defiant about taking the medication and I told my grandma I was like you know I've worked with the elderly population just crush up put his ice cream he loves ice cream crush up put his ice cream he got his meds in and he loves ice cream so he would tear that ice cream up yep exactly (laughs) so uh, not you know not taking it personally but also using that creativity I think that's a theme that I've heard y'all say as well you got to get creative right right you're absolutely right. And we had several incidents where we would do things like that. Like my dad loved watch, uh, watches. So when he go to the doctor, sometimes he would put on, uh, on four watches. And, you know, and, and I would just look and I say, okay, uh, dad, you, you, you going to tell a lot of time today or are you selling watches today? And he'll just say, well, I might be, <laughs> you know, so you just have to be creative. Uh-huh. Definitely. Because I mean, whether life takes a turn and you're kind of dealing with these um, these terminal situations, you got to keep living. I think a lot of people focus on Mm -hmm. the end result, but we've got to live, you know, each individual day and, you know, soak up what each individual day has to offer. And that's universal um, because we can, you know, let a lot of stuff slip past us if we're focused on just the big picture of things. So that's a great sentiment. Yeah. And I think emotionally, uh, it helps us in the end when we try to accept it and uh, move forward. For me, I um, I was able to uh, embrace it and walk with my dad through it. So by the time um, he got to his... Uh, his demise and his death, then I was okay with it. I had made peace with myself uh, just going through the process. And uh, it makes it easier, you know, for you. And I think when you distance yourself from these types of things, it's more difficult. Definitely, because a lot of people, when... again, we can be universal with this. When bad things happen, they spend all of their time and energy fighting or denying what is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Right. We can look back at um, this past year with COVID and everything. I know um, there were a lot of people who spent most of, you know, 2020, like, in that rut of, ah, everything is, you know, falling apart and, you know, everything is going Mm -hmm. terrible. And, Yes, it was not fun, but I mean, there were people who used that, that time and, and, you know, they were living, right? Like they were starting businesses, they were getting creative, they were, um, and so that the people who accepted and lived in the moment and, you know, turned lemons into lemonade, they thrived, whereas the people who just 
got fixated and stuck on the this is terrible this is going to end badly you know they you know there's a lot of consequences to that health wise mental health wise Mm -hmm. um financially like all of that so um i think that's a really good point of you have to you know soak up those moments while you have them um because you don't know how you know and none of it doesn't even have to be dementia or older age like we never really know what tomorrow holds so Mm -hmm. being able to take each day um as a gift that's that's really important Mm -hmm. so as we wrap up i um have greatly enjoyed talking with y'all um i've learned a lot here um uh i'll start with um lakeisha and then i'll ask the same question to gwen what would be Mm -hmm. um one thing that you would give to someone listening who has a loved one kind of dealing with dementia or alzheimer's what would be like one takeaway or um a piece of advice you would give them so i'll ask lakeisha first and then we'll uh, ask the same question Mm -hmm. to gwen get educated you have to be knowledgeable about the diagnosis in order to understand what your loved one is going through um and like i mentioned before alzheimer's association is a great resource whether you go on their website find out more information whether you reach out to someone who works there but definitely become educated and then you're able to take some next steps about the education, sometimes you don't have a roadmap. Definitely. And I'll make sure to put the the link to the Alzheimer's uh, organization in the show notes um, so that people can find it easily. And so I have the same question for you, Gwen. What would be one piece of advice that you would give to a caregiver or um, someone who has a loved one dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's? Okay. And um, just like Lakeisha, um, I I would say learn as much as you can um, about the disease. Um, Communicate with other people that you may already know that may have experienced uh, Alzheimer's because other people can give you a level of comfort by sharing with you their experience, even though the experiences may be different, but uh, they are somewhat similar. And uh, and just be creative and just live through the moment. Those are great gems of wisdom there. Um, so once again, thank you, Lakeisha and Gwen, for um, this conversation. And um, I'm have no doubt that this is gonna um, reach a lot of people who need to to hear this and reflect on these because it's inevitable that each of us kind of interacts with. Um, you know, Lakeisha gave those statistics earlier, like, uh, this stuff is very common at Mm -hmm. some point. Um, and so we kind of need to know, um, and prepare for it so that we're ready when these things inevitably happen. Um, so to wrap up, uh, Lakeisha, um, you shared a little bit about your business. I will be sure to put your your website in the show notes uh, for this episode. And I'll also link the other episode that we did. Actually, we've technically done two episodes on the podcast because I put one as a bonus <laughs> episode. So lots of great information from uh, Dr. Lakeisha Roney. Um, so I'll link all of that in the show notes. Gwen, you said that you do um, catering and seamstress work. <laughs> people can find you that you want to share with the listeners? Well, actually, most of my work is just done through word of mouth, and that's how I've gone all of these years. Uh, I usually have business cards at at a site, and when someone uh, sees what work I've done, they just let someone else know, or uh, they uh, take a business card and uh, just pass it on. But it's sort of like a side job. (laughs) Great. And word of mouth is the best way because it, it kind of runs itself. But Lakeisha, if you don't mind, get one of those business cards and forward it to me. I'll be sure to put yes, that info in the show notes. Um, and so hopefully uh, some of the listeners who might need those services can reach out to you, Gwen. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks, Janzel, for the opportunity. Thank both yeah, of thanks you. For- Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, 
so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.